Hi, my name is Mike Morris, and I'm honored to be joining you for this first episode of a new show we've called Community Corner with Mike Morris here on Midtown Radio. I first came to Waterloo Region to study at Laurier almost 20 years ago, and the time since I've seen directly how ours is a community of barn raising, of innovation, and of collaboration. But over the last year, right across our region, many of the inequities that existed before the pandemic have only been made worse. In 2019, I knocked on tens of thousands of front doors and from the conversations that followed with neighbors, I got a pretty good sense of the priorities they held, from addressing the opioid epidemic to the climate crisis to mental health. And so in the time since, I've sought to use my platform and my privilege to put a spotlight on these priorities and amplify the voices of those working on the front lines through a series of blog posts and Facebook conversations. Through it all, my hope has been to feature those who are advocating for a more just community, shining a light on the progress they're making, letting people across our community know what support is available, what gaps remain, and how you can help. I'm excited to now be bringing these voices from across our community to Midtown Radio. Over the coming weeks and months, I hope you'll join me to learn about how we can create more welcoming communities for refugees, uh, the impact the pandemic is having on mental health, to hear the stories of innovative and resilient small businesses, what can be done to end gender-based violence, and how we can all be a part of supporting a thriving and anti-racist arts community, just to name a few. Tonight's episode originally aired in January and features Shelley Campagnola, who works with refugees facing unimaginable barriers to settling here through her work as the executive director of Compass Refugee Center. At the time of our conversation, it was known as the Mennonite Coalition for Refugee Support. It is a joy and an honor to be a part of the weekly Midtown radio rotation, alongside a dedicated group of volunteers building community through a shared passion for radio. In so many ways, it feels like home. So welcome to Community Corner with Mike Morris, right here on Midtown Radio. So Shelly, thanks so much uh, for making time for this conversation tonight. Uh, really, really appreciate you being here and you doing doing this. I think if, if it's okay with you, I'll start with just a brief land acknowledgement. Um, yeah. And then as, as folks uh, join us, we'll, we'll move into, uh, we'll start with just a conversation, a bit of a Q&A and hear from you. And then as folks join, I'll, I'll be letting folks know that they can be asking questions throughout. We've got an hour, and so there should be a good amount of time for, uh, for, for questions from folks uh, throughout mm-hmm. the conversation. So uh, let me start by acknowledging that uh, the land that Shelley and I are both on uh, is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee, and the Neutral Peoples. As many of you know, we're situated on the Haldeman Tract. This is 950,000 acres of land uh, that was promised to the Six Nations in 1784. It's 10 kilometers on either side of the Grand River, and more specifically, Uh, The city of Kitchener that I'm uh, speaking to you from is situated within block two of the Haldeman Tract. This was intended to be leased to settlers and instead was sold as land with full title. And so I feel it's worth repeating that across all of the Haldeman Tract, there were very few outright sales of land and 90% of the leased land has never been paid for or paid to six nations. 
Uh, if you're joining from another location, I'd encourage you to research the history of the land that you live, work, and play on. My interest in acknowledging this history as we start into this conversation is I think it's important to have a reminder of some of the injustices of the past, of our colonial history that informs uh, very much uh, the present, and also part of our conversation today as we spoke, speak around migration, uh, refugees, and the impacts on our country uh, to, this, to this day. Also, as I acknowledge the history of this land and the continued impacts of colonialism, I do so with a, a hope, I guess, uh, an active hope that in conversations like the one that, uh, that Shelley and I have, will have today, that this is part of a, uh, an, a journey towards genuine truth and reconciliation. And, and so, Shelley, with that, I uh, thought we could just start by hearing a bit more around you know, I guess we don't have time for the full history of the uh, Mennonite Coalition for Refugee Support. It's, you know, 30 plus mm -hmm. years, uh, but I feel really lucky to have you as uh, such an expert in our community, uh, have been leading MCRS, I understand, for the last four years or so. But would you mind sharing just a little bit about some of, kind of, uh, I imagine some of those conversations in the 80s and, and how MCRS kind of came to be? Yeah, so I uh, uh, really appreciated your uh, opening thoughts around Waterloo Region. Waterloo Region has, has been a place that people have come to for a long, long time, you know, since really 1700s, uh, more so in the 1800s. Of course, we started seeing uh, increasing waves through the 1900s and into, uh, you know, the 2000s. In, 19, in the 1980s, uh, the world was, as it seems to always be, in a little bit of upheaval in uh in different parts, of, but particularly in uh, Nicaragua, there was a the Nicaraguan Revolution that uh, was was very intense, and uh, many people were driven out of the country for their own safety, and some of them found their way to Canada and to this region. And there were, uh, as they were in the in the region and trying to find their way uh, through, not having English as their first language. And you know, having to deal with a uh, process of refugee uh, claim, as well as trying to figure out how to how to settle and get themselves, you know, roof over their head and and the day to day living here. A number of Mennonite churches came together along with MCC Ontario and began to respond and to just come alongside and to help. And there was enough people coming that these uh, churches decided to formalize and. Uh, come together more more intentionally and with a with more of an intentional focus and resources to continue the work because the recognition was that people would keep coming and uh, that's been the case and so over uh, since then so we started in 1987 uh, on the platform of MCC that uh, provided you know the administrative and charitable support and and then in 2004 we got our own charitable status in 2007, we were incorporated, and uh, here we are today in early 2021. Uh, I've been with the organization since uh, uh, May 2016, so uh, well, four and a half, a little over four and a half years. And in that time, uh, oh, almost 3,800 individuals and families representing over 10,000 people have been uh, accompanied and assisted and, and advocated for uh, by MCRS uh, and, and the community in which we are in, because MCRS has never been a standalone. It's always relied heavily on the community, uh, volunteers, and, um, and the goodwill of the community and the support of the community. 
And uh, it's pretty exciting that literally, yeah, well over 10,000 lives have been positively be impacted um, with us really as the bridge builders between the community and the people needing needing a refuge, needing to find a new place to live and to have protection from the things that they have fled. So that's that's kind of a big summary. Well, that's that's helpful context, I think. I think also really interesting to hear about, you know, for those of us who are interested in what the experience might be for those seeking refuge and seeking a welcome in Waterloo region, what does that look like for you and your staff? What is your kind of day-to-day, what does that support uh, like? And I know there are other settlement partners as well in our community, but to even just have a bit of a flavor of uh, if I were kind of um, – on the MCRS team for a week, what are some of the interactions and conversations uh, and support that I would see? Yeah, so uh, understanding that when uh, somebody who's a refugee, a refugee claimant Mm -hmm. is actually in a whole different category than any other refugee category. Uh, When they come, they, they don't have any status. They don't have permanent residency. They don't even have temporary status. And that excludes them from a lot of resources. And, uh, um, and so it makes it difficult for them to navigate the social systems and to find places to live, to find employment, to, um, in fact, many of them, they, they have to wait, they have to apply for a work permit. And that, ha- and that is based on them being determined to be even eligible to make a claim. And so uh, if they're not determined to be eligible to make a claim, they can't get a work permit, which means they're very quickly turning around and being sent back to the very thing that they have fled. But most people uh, have a chance to uh, make a claim, and, uh, but they need help because the documents are all in English, and they're pretty intense documents. You're getting, uh, as maybe they should, getting pretty much a third degree and into the details of their life for a number of years. So it's not just their recent experience, but their long experience. They also, uh, we've had people, uh, you know, literally show up with suitcases. They've come fresh off of, you know, the border having been cleared to come to cross the border and, uh, but no place to go, no money in their pocket, you know, literally just no resources. And so uh, that's where, that's a big part of what we do is help people get that roof over their head, get some food, uh, get some sense of safety and security while we get sorted out with their, get them started on making their claim. And then we journey with them for the entire time. Um, as, uh, as most people might, maybe actually many people are probably not aware that right now it takes about two years before they're going to get their initial hearing to determine if their claim is valid or deemed to be valid. And um, so in that time, Again, they don't have access to a lot of uh, maybe the benefits that a permanent resident or a citizen would have. So it's very important that they find a job that uh, helps them to make ends meet. It's very important that they find a place that they can afford, that is sustainable, get their children, if they have them settled into school, uh, get clothes for the different climates of our you know, different weather seasons that we have here, and get connected to people who can uh, fill the gaps that they have left behind. Uh, Probably the biggest profile uh, um, thing that most people don't realize is many of the people that we help were professionals and, and difference makers in their country of origin. Yeah. And, uh, and so they come with a lot of skill, a lot of uh, capacity, a lot of ability to contribute to our community. 
we're talking people who were lawyers, they were government officials, human rights activists, journalists, teachers, business owners, and because of the difference that they were making, got persecuted, they got personally targeted. And so there are people like you and I who, you know, even in this conversation, we're trying to make a difference. And in other countries, that would have us being targeted and, uh, and our families and friends being targeted and our only recourse being to get out of the country. Thanks for sharing that, Shelley. I want to welcome those that have been uh, joining us over the last few minutes here tonight with Shelley Kempagnola from uh, the Executive Director of MCRS. I really appreciate you all making time to be with us tonight. If you have questions for Shelley, feel free to share those and uh, we'll, have, we'll have time for that over, over the course of this conversation. Uh, Shelley, in the blog post, I shared one courageous story of a, a refugee um, who shared through the community edit editorial board in the record some of his uh, personal story of, of fleeing violence and persecution and, and uh, some of the challenges he and his family went through as they came to our community. When we last spoke, you shared some really eye-opening stories around kind of the history we have of welcoming. And so I'm wondering if maybe, uh, I think it'd be really helpful to hear if there's a story that you feel comfortable sharing of, of a person that MCRS has supported uh, to give us a, a sense of what that, what the, those two years are like, um, you know, even the idea of applying for a job when you're still a claimant and, and what kind of paperwork you do or don't have, the language mm -hmm. barriers. So I guess the two-part question is, one, I think it'd be helpful for folks to hear a bit about that history you shared with, with me last time uh, of the way we have been welcoming in past. It was the kind of the story at Herb Mennonite off of, a, mm -hmm. a, you know, 200 years ago. And maybe then also a, a, a story, if there's one that, it, that you have permission and feel comfortable sharing mm -hmm. of what uh, someone's experience might have been like. Yeah, so the story that you're referring to is uh, when 850 uh, Mennonites from the uh, uh, Russian area uh, uh, had to flee. They were, uh, their freedoms were being stripped away at an alarming rate. And, and so they came and nav you know, navigated across the globe and uh, arrived, arrived by train into this region and walked from the train station over to Herb Street Mennonite where there was a, a team waiting for them. And uh, they were billeted in people's homes. And uh, it was about 50% more than people were expecting in terms of numbers. But, uh, and there were cultural differences, even though they were both Mennonite groups, there were cultural differences having come from different parts of the world. And, uh, you know, language differences and food differences and, um, you know, just how, how people view the world and how they navigate it, right? So, but it was a success and, and many people uh, found, their, found their new place here. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we're going to be uh, in 2024, that, that's going to be 100 years since mm -hmm. that first happened. So there were, by means, the, the first group that came uh, in terms of refugee, there were many people that came into this area, you know, escaping slavery in the United States back in the 1800s. But uh, in terms of the, the Mennonite community, which MCRS has been a part of, um, that, is a, that is a watershed uh, moment. And then since then, we've certainly seen waves of people come uh, since then. And I think one of the things that has been uh, amazing about Waterloo Region is even with the struggle that it can be to navigate language and, and help people understand even just, you know, it's cold and you can't leave the doors open and... and uh, you know, uh, yeah, we get a lot of snow and it can get slippery and, and what have you, and the food is different. Uh, if you look around the region now, it's actually, we're much richer because of the, the diversity that has come wave after wave after wave. And, and for, you know, maybe those of us that have grown up here, 
uh, we get to enjoy that as a as a privilege and a benefit, but really it's the it's the fruit of of actually people having had to leave their countries out of out of suffering and and oppression. And now we're, we're navigating through that as a community to actually enjoy one another and to enjoy what each other brings. One of the biggest challenges in, is in terms of those work permits and, and the credentials. Okay. Uh, we hear that a lot and, and we hear that a lot in the business world as well, you know, just through economic migration. Uh, the uh, credentials that, you know, somebody might have been a doctor in their country of origin, and it, it might have even been a country that you vacation in, and you're really glad that there are good hospitals in that area and good doctors, uh, but those credentials aren't recognized here. And so somebody who might have been a professional in another country is not allowed to practice that profession here. Uh, could have been a doctor, could have been an engineer, maybe even an accountant. You know, the systems are different. And, uh, and it's quite a hurdle to... Uh, to get those credentials recognized, and, and many of them don't. And so then it becomes a question of what can they do with the skills that they have. And language is a huge barrier to communicating your skill set, communicating what you can contribute, and having people understand that. So many people end up taking, you know, the first job that they can get. Uh, and, that, and that's, uh, and, but it's a temporary permit. And so one of the challenges that we see is, there are some employers that are reluctant to hire because they see a temporary work permit instead of a permanent one. And so rather than in, in embracing the richness for a time, they lose out on that for fear that, it, you know, it might be gone a year or two from now. So, which is a real uh, shame, but overall the trajectory of this community has been to, to find a way to include others. And, um, looking forward, we can talk a bit about some of the specific uh, calls to action, things that people can do to mm-hmm. build on the, that his, history. And um, in the meantime, I wanted to also, I guess, share part of why this came up for me and even writing this post in the first place, as, as I shared, was this some of the misinformation and disinformation mm-hmm. that is um, pretty uh, widely held across our community. Uh, the, 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 fa- the, the facts on, on refugees have seemed to have been lost uh, along along the way, and and it's uh, very much something I I heard often when I was uh, knocking on people's doors in 2019 uh, was this this sense that refugees receive more support than average, and this, so so anyway, so, so one of the things I was so um, that I learned just over the last few months is the fact that refu- that people who seek refuge here over the time of their lives in Canada start more businesses than the Canadian mm-hmm. average. That there's this entrepreneurial uh, quality that, um, that uh, is, is, is actually just, that's one of the, the real facts around uh, those that are seeking refuge here. Um, mm-hmm. And so I know we don't have time, that folks can see the blog post for, for more of that, but I'm curious if Shelly, if there's, you know, if you were speaking with someone for the first time and they, they, they asked you a question out of curiosity, oh, tell me more about, um, those seeking refuge here, what are kind of like the top three things you'd want uh, someone to know ab- about about refugees that are settling in our in our our, our community? Yeah, so one of the, one of the things that uh, dovetails on what you were just talking about, and and that is, you know, they come to just access our support systems, right? And um, our support systems aren't that great to access, and you know, word travels pretty quickly around the world. Uh, you can't you can't live on what people might get for a short time. So when somebody first comes, 
they, they've come from a country where, uh, with a very similar work ethic to what most of us have grown up with, and that is, if you don't work, you don't eat. And uh, and again, they've been they've been game changers in their communities. They're used to being industrious and and contributing and making a difference and, and doing well at what they do. So to think that you know they want to just kind of pick that up and come here and and you know just live off the system is uh, fails to recognize even the the reasons that they needed to leave and but also uh, the, the character that they bring with them. And that is that industriousness and wanting to contribute and desperately not wanting to be dependent on somebody else. In fact, you know, uh, most of the people that we work with are, uh, when they first arrive, they, they are forced onto Ontario Works because they don't have a work permit, um, but they're working within five to eight months. Um, whereas, you know, most people who have grown up in Ontario that might access Ontario Works, the average is 19 to 36 months to be on social assistance before being employed again. And so there's a there's a big disparity in understanding there. Um, and, and so these are people that are ready to contribute. They want to get their life going again. And the second is, um, you know, they... They don't come having it all figured out and, you know, and just, you know, getting on with their lives. Many of them have had to leave family members behind, spouses, children. Some, many of them have lost a spouse or a child because of what they have experienced. And so when they come here, they're coming here having had some pretty horrible experiences. And, and they are digging in deep uh, and pressing on because that's who they are. And uh, as I said, they're quickly contributing to the community uh, through their work, but also through their relationships and the connections that we help them to make. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it really is uh, phenomenal to see their, their uh, tenacity, mm -hmm. their courage, their compassion. Uh, many will take in, uh, you know, the next wave of refugees, even if they're living, you know, in, in difficult quarters to start with, uh, you know, it's not unusual for, a family to take in another family, even though they're just living in an apartment, because they know what it's like to, be, you know, to be uh, not sure where where are you going to sleep, and 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 how important it is to be in relationship with somebody to help you through their journey. And so there's just this this readiness, and and this isn't you know just kind of a generalization. This is something we've seen with the majority of the people that we work with. Is um, and so you know the biggest thing they want is relationship, and when we become Many of them have called them our second family and, and you know, friends and, and the difference makers for them to feel like uh, that they matter, that they're human, um, and that their dignity is just as important as ours, mm -hmm. and their losses are significant. And so uh, if, we can, if we can help them by telling them, yeah, it's okay to feel badly that you have to be here. Um, and some of them, uh, you know, you, you asked for a story that might, uh, you know, that has deeply impacted mm -hmm. me. And... Go back to the first summer that I was with MCRS and talking with one of our caseworkers at the time about a family, uh, and just debriefing the grief because this uh, the mom had said, you know, my my daughter is still stuck back in my country of origin, and it's a horrible situation there right now, and it's not good for a single gal to be on their own in this country, very dangerous, and so she said, it, this process is taking too long, so I'm going back because I would rather die with my daughter than being here alone and alive and, and her dying alone. And that just floored me um, because, uh, you know, our, we, 
in, in essence, we took too long and, and the stakes just got too high. And, um, and, you know, to go back to the very thing that you fled so that your kids are not alone in that mess um, it, it was just profound for me. So um, never heard anything like that before, right? So, I mean, I have, I have three children. I can't imagine having to leave them behind in a dangerous mm-hmm. situation and, I, and having to wait, you know, not just, a, not just a few weeks or a few months, but years to know if I will uh, ever get to see them again and knowing that they're still back in the very thing. And, and I couldn't bring them with me. It's not that I necessarily chose to leave them behind. I didn't have a choice if I was going to find a safe place for my family. I, I had to go on ahead and look for that place. Um, that's just mind-blowing to me. It uh, reminds me of the, the privilege that so many of us hold that we have, I can speak for myself, I have the chance to choose to be a part of this conversation. Mm-hmm choose how and when I, I might, um, you know, look to uh, engage and support and sign a petition, whatever the case might be. And the folks you're working with on a regular basis don't have that choice. This is not something that, you know, is um, something they check. This is, this is life mm-hmm. for them. And I even, I even just think of over the holidays, the number of folks who didn't get to see a grandchild and, and, you know, I, I've had that conversation with so many people in my life of how heartbreaking that's been for grandparents and, um, and, and for family members who were separated for the first time over the holidays. And, 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 and not to take away, that, that was difficult and is difficult. And, and maybe also that is a, a, a window to empathy uh-huh. to, to help some of us understand when, we, when, when folks like yourself are advocating around family re- reunification and how important and, and the struggles that are intersectional in some of the challenges folks are facing, whether you mentioned language a few times, racism, bureaucracy, some of those, my eyes, I'm a, I'm a native English speaker. Uh, and when I read some of the documents, even just over the last few months, um, my eyes just kind of gloss over attempting to understand uh, all of the various bureaucratic hurdles. Um, and, and so I think, yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that, Shelley, because I think it helps give us a sense of just the, the, the reality of the hardship, the life and death nature mm-hmm. of what, um, of the folks you're working with are, are experiencing as, as a result of needing to seek refuge here, whether they're fleeing natural disasters or violence mm-hmm. or whatever the case might be. And, and also the gratitude, um, you know, the number of settlement partners in Waterloo region, organizations like MCRS and, and, and Reception House and, and so many others that are uh, journeying alongside. Um, there's a certain uh, emotional burden, I'm sure, that, that goes uh, with, uh, with that for caseworkers that are on your team, for example. Um, and so thank you uh, for, uh, for that leadership. Um, both with folks in our community, uh, as well as I'm sure the advocacy you do uh, uh, in levels of government to say, listen, this is not working. Mm-hmm. We need to do better. Um, and for me, that's where we can reach. I'd love to hear more from you on, and, and in the, again, in the post that's linked here, there, there are some of, we might touch on some of these, you know, very tangible things that all of us can be doing to seek to uh, create a more welcoming environment, more welcome country, and even more welcoming community for those seeking refuge. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, and so maybe we can talk about those. If, again, those that might have joined us more recently, there's lots of time for questions. And so feel free to, I, I got a, one or two I've already seen that I'd like to pull out. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, Shelly, do you want to share your, your top three of, you know, if these are, these are the things that we can all be keeping in mind um, that these are tangible changes that can be made to improve the lives of, of folks that are seeking refuge here? Yeah, I would, so I would say number one is believe them. Uh, you know, the, the, there's a system in place designed to, to root out those that might not have credible claims. But, uh, you know, at MCRS, um, we see well over 90% of the people who uh, do eventually get Canada's protection because their claim is valid. Uh, they, they were at risk. And I think all of us know what it feels like to not be believed when you're trying to persuade something of someone of something that has happened to you. And, um, and you know, to not have people believe you uh, and is, is painful. And so number one would be to believe them and let the system do the job. Um, and, but for us, because what, what believing does then is it opens us up to come alongside and say, how can I help you? And, um, and to understand that help is not about uh, remembering that these are quite capable people, you know. Uh, and, and so help is more about um, creating connections, uh, helping people navigate the system, even as simple as it might be something as simple as helping a parent understand report cards uh, or, you know, the bus system or, you know, where they might be able to get uh, different things that they need. Um, uh, and, and to help them, you know, uh, communicate in a way that works in the time until they gain the language and to be patient in that because learning a language, particularly English is not easy, right? So, um, so believe them, uh, and then, you know, allow that belief to, to ask the questions, how can I help? And then when there are barriers that are not fair, um, you know, whether they're discrimination or they are, um, uh, you know, systemic barriers to help, to help them get through those barriers and to even speak about them to get them removed. It's okay to speak up and with, you know, to speak up for and to speak with. Remembering again that many of the people that come, as much as they can speak for themselves, speaking for themselves is actually why they're here, is because they did speak up and it cost them everything. And so there is a little bit of a reluctance. And so, you know, being an ally instead of, you know, maybe an accuser um, or being a silent, you know, spectator is going to be really critical uh, to helping them uh, just get through even just some of the day-to-day -day stuff. And, and what can that look like for folks, Shelley? If, if someone is thinking, you know, I, I have a real heart for newcomers to our community, um, is there... You know, is it a volunteer opportunity that someone might be able to, I, I find when I volunteered in, in the past, I am learning from and, and with other folks mm -hmm. who have a lot more experience as well as uh, those that are um, being served by that organization. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, so I, I wonder if, if you, uh, what is, where is a kind of an entry point for someone with good intentions uh, who is thinking that they might want to engage more deeply, understand more deeply, and also recognizing that allyship requires a lot of work on the individual's part to, to do the work to understand where their allyship is, is wanted, mm -hmm. needed, and appropriate. Um, what do you think some of those gateways are, those starting points are? 
Yeah, honestly, we, th we would say to them, CRS, there's no limit. Uh, there, you, you'll pick, pick, pick a step and just run with it, right? Uh, you can do it in your workplace. You can do it in your school. Uh, you can do it in your, your faith community if you're a part of a faith community. Uh, you can do it on a sports team. Uh, you can do it in the grocery store. You can, you know, if you see somebody, just start by saying hi. Um, and, uh, and then include, right. And, and, you know, go through those first awkward times together as you navigate how you're going to communicate with each other and how you're going to include, you know, knock on their door in your apartment building or, you know, in the, in the house or townhouse beside you and, and be welcoming and, and, and just get to know them in terms of more formal, you know, at MCRS, um, a lot of what we have done for many of our years focused largely on the uh, claim process and their, that was where we, you know, we needed people who could translate and interpret. So translation being the written work, getting the, you know, the documents that they, especially the evidence documents that they needed to prove their claim, getting those translated from their language into English. Uh, and then uh, interpretation for when, you know, a caseworker is meeting with somebody, having somebody that is, you know, fully bilingual in the lang that language and English was, was critical for us. Uh, having, you know, host welcoming people as they came into our office and just being kind and spending time with them. Uh, now that we have our guest house, uh, which provides temporary, uh, a temporary stay for people when they first arrive into the community, uh, there's a number of opportunities, you know, to, uh, that we're looking at. Of course, with COVID, that guest house is pretty quiet right now. But, you know, community dinners, recreational activities, English cafes, um, you know, the, the really the sky's the limit because it's about building relationships. So in every way that you can think of that you would engage a relationship is, uh, you know, in healthy ways is a way to engage as a volunteer. And, and, um, and we've actually moved to uh, um, kind of a, a dual model of volunteering. So where we have those that volunteer regularly because the work is regular, you know, in terms of the translation and, and what have you. And then what we call micro volunteers, little mini projects, you can do, you know, in anywhere from half an hour to two hours to maybe a little project and then it's done. And so, for example, as we were, um, even though the guest house is empty, we've taken the opportunity to do some refurbishing and, and, and improve it. And so we, uh, we bought ceiling fans for every bedroom and common area and uh, to, to improve air circulation. And uh, we had a volunteer contractor who mm -hmm. came in and put them all in for us, you know, a one and done. And yet in doing it, you know, he got to do something that he loves to do, got to learn a little bit about us, got to meet the family that's staying at the house right now. Um, and it, so it was, a, it was a whole new window into something else. And yet it didn't require, okay, now you're locked in for the rest of your life until you can't handle being a volunteer anymore, yeah, right? I, so that's so awesome. Yeah, we say, come to us with your idea. What do you really love to do? And we'll find someone that you can do that with. I love, I love that. I often feel it's the case that folks might expect that if I contribute, if I put my, uh, if I step into volunteering, I'm committed for five hours a week for the next five years, and I don't want to disappoint. Yeah. But the idea that there are ad hoc and, and that people have different skill sets, mm -hmm. um, that different backgrounds, that those might be, you know, it's not always you need to join a board, but installing a ceiling fan is part of volunteering at MCRS. I think that's, you know, it opens up the number of people that might potentially consider that, you know, volunteering might be an option for them. Yeah. Um, in, 
In the post, I included a list of some of the local organizations, MCRS among them. And I think, you know, at one point, Shelley, you also said that, you know, find the thing that makes you passionate or you're excited about and, and dig in and, and, and engage there. Because usually, usually it's a bit of a two-way street, right? That then um, that might be, uh, you might start by installing a ceiling fan and then learn a few things and find that that's actually um, a really a source of good energy and excitement and maybe might lead someone to then engaging mm-hmm. more. Um, in, in terms of policy, uh, I thought we could talk briefly about, I know, so in the, in the post, there's uh, um, a number of barriers, particularly in the pandemic, that uh, refugees are, are facing more so than ever. There's also the, the, the safe third country agreement that, um, and there's been a, a long you know, standing call the last number of years to have changes there. Um, I guess I'll leave it to you there. And I'm, as I do, I'm also going to be checking for questions over here. So I'm going to just going to jump sure. over to start looking at what questions are coming in. But I'm curious if there is a particular policy uh, that you'd want to call out that, again, w- where we can all engage would, would be um, demonstrating, putting our, putting our voices up to say, yes, this is something we need to see changed, putting pressure on our elected representatives uh, to see that change happen. Um, yeah. w- what do you want to draw attention to? Let's say third country agreement is a significant one for us right now. Uh, the agreement assumes that the, uh, peop- the uh, refugee claimants will be treated the same in the states as they are in Canada, and, um, and they're not. Uh, in fact, if somebody comes to the border and doesn't qualify under the safe third country agreement, uh, they are detained back in the states, and many of them are deported, and they don't get to go through the same uh, system where they get a chance to be heard, get a chance for their story to be heard, and the evidence uh, shown to support that story. Uh, and so, uh, and there's been numerous, um, uh, you know, it, when, when that came to the came to the federal courts, there were numerous examples given of people who had been horribly mistreated uh, while being detained. And, you know, separated from uh, different family members and not having any idea of how and when that would be resolved. And, and many people getting deported. And, you know, and of course, then we don't even know what happens to them after that, right? And, and so it's, it's, a, it's an agreement that was, uh, again, was based on the, the premise that the systems are the same and that, the, that both countries have the same attitude towards people who are seeking refuge. And they don't. And two of the biggest... Uh, differences are that the United States no longer recognizes uh, uh, domestic abuse that is considered culturally that is culturally considered okay in terms of the practice and gang violence as reasons to seek protection anymore. And so, if you live in a country where uh, you don't, particularly as a woman, you have no rights, you have no body rights, and uh, and the courts do not recognize. Uh, domestic violence as being something that is uh, is some is something that you need to be protected from, and uh, and then you come to the states. The states is not going to listen to you. If you come to Canada, we'll listen to you, and we'll determine whether you had uh, other recourse or you know other answers that you could have gone gone for. Um, but uh, but we'll at least have the opportunity. We'll at least give you the opportunities to, to state your case. They won't get that opportunity in the states. If you're in a country that's uh, dealing with uh, heavy gang violence and, and corruption in the court systems because of that, uh, and uh, and you know you need to leave in order to get away from that to protect yourself, uh, we showed a movie a year and a half ago at Princess mm-hmm. Cin- Cinemas called Icebox, 
that's a really good movie if you have uh, access to HBO. Um, I think it even showed up on Netflix not that long ago. Mm. It was a blending, really, of the situation of gang violence as well as what happens in the States with refugee claimants. Um, but gang violence is, no, is not recognized as a reason for protection in the United States, where, it is, again, it is here in Canada. So the Safe Third Country Agreement is a big one for us. We are glad right now that it has been struck down. Uh, yes, it is in appeal, and we would encourage people to call their MPs and say, listen, uh, un unless you can prove that the systems are equal, um, then you need, to, uh, you need to stand down on this agreement. It sounds like it's, it's simply developed on a faulty premise, uh, mm -hmm. one where the facts have changed, and given the fact that the U.S. is not safe for all, mm -hmm. that those powers that the the Canadian Border Service Agency has are no longer appropriate. Okay. And, and so I would strongly encourage it's uh, again, it's in the, in the post um, you can go to um, mikemorris.ca slash blog at the, towards the bottom, you'll see the safe third country agreement. And uh, I think it's an amnesty international uh, petition is, is the one I included in the, in the post uh, as well as I think Shelly, your point is great. You know, call your representative mm -hmm. directly. Um, that, that uh, our MPs need to be hearing from us. Uh, and, and that is part of the democratic process to make sure. Uh, and again, back to your point around allyship, uh, there is, that is a, a, a privilege uh, that uh, we all have, which is, you know, that we have access to our elected representatives mm -hmm. and they ought to be listening. And the more pressure that is put on them, the more likely to see that change uh, made. Mm -hmm. In terms of questions, I want to, uh, there's a few on the, the pandemic specifically, yeah. Shelley. Um, so can you talk a bit about, uh, and there's a one on red tape and government and that that we'll get to, but for now, um, I guess a lot of folks imagine that the pandemic has shifted things quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, how has uh, COVID impacted your work and, you know, re that, the lives of refugee claimants uh, over the past year? It is. It has had a significant impact on our work in the sense, uh, you know, the border is closed, uh, the land border, uh, except for very extreme situations. So there is a, a trickle. Uh, I think it's one or two a day being handled at Fort Erie, uh, and those are those are extreme, desperate situations uh, that are determined, and so people are allowed to come across if they're deemed eligible under those circumstances. Um, and, you know, all the security uh, things are done to make sure that you know, nobody gets across the border. Uh, we, we know refugee claimants better than we know our neighbors by the time they're allowed to cross the border um, because they go through such an intense uh, screening for security purposes. Uh, if they are allowed across uh, and, and, you know, if they've come in, especially before the uh, new travel advisory on, the, on COVIDs, um, they, have, they go into quarantine right away, and uh, that's not an option. I mean, they don't, they don't have papers to travel around with. So, yeah. you know, they go from the border straight to quarantine. And, uh, you know, again, talking with our partners in Fort Erie, they're usually there for at least three weeks, and then they have their eligibility hearing. Uh, and then it's decided whether they can move on from there to another part of the province to begin their, you know, their, their refugee claim process more so. Um, Having said that, uh, you know, so, so we're not seeing too many new people for mm -hmm. sure. And, and so you know, the public can be rest assured that people aren't just walking across the border. Um, and, and even in times before COVID, 
uh, as much as it seemed like people were just walking across the border, that's not how it works. As I said, uh, we know refugee claimants far better than we do our neighbors and uh, far better than any other traveler coming into Canada. In fact, you know, in 2019, there were 2 million, uh, or I'm sorry, 20 million people that, that went back and forth across our border, you know, for various reasons, right? Whether it's tourism or business or whatever. And, uh, and there were 55,000 people that came seeking refuge. And we know more about those 55,000 than we did the 20 million. So, um, in terms of uh, our work here, though, you know, we, we did have, at the time of the first lockdown, you know, we had over 1,600 people that we were working with in our community. And people were surprised at that because they're like, you know, again, there's this public perception that, you know, refugee claimants make life difficult for us, but you don't even know they're here. And that's how, that's, that's your first uh, evidence that they don't make life difficult for us because you don't even know they're here. We know they're here because we're working with them. Yeah. Um, and uh, and and so when the when the lockdown happened, because they don't have permanent residency status or citizenship, they don't have access to Canadian child benefit. Uh, you know, they don't have access to Ontario child benefit. They didn't have access to OHIP. Uh, you know, many of them uh, did not have access to some of the emergency resources that were coming out. And so we did a lot of advocacy work, and as did many other partner organizations and many of our political representatives to ensure that they had at least basic provision for health and and day-to-day well-being right so we did a lot of that many you know most of those people are still with us in fact over the year uh, between those that came and went because um, you know again the whole year wasn't in lockdown so we still had some time that wasn't um, you know, we served almost 1,900 people that, that were, uh, and that include men, women, and children, wow. um, ensuring that they had, they had what they needed to get through. So, so we have kept very, very busy. In fact, it was our busiest year ever, in terms of the number of people that we accompanied throughout the year. That's incredible. And the reality is, the pandemic, in a lot of ways, has only laid bare more profoundly various inequities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. I- I think about from a, a climate point of view, you know, we're seeing increased number of climate refugees, mm-hmm. pandemic, you know, climate and pandemic aren't, uh, uh, that continues despite the pandemic. Are you expecting increased numbers uh, as we move towards, you know, as post vaccination and, and as we move out of uh, lockdown and that, is that part of what you and your team are preparing for? Uh, as we expect, there is still folks fleeing from violent situations um, pandemic notwithstanding? Yes, uh, the global picture, particularly as it relates to the refugee claimants and uh, people needing protection, has only gotten worse because of COVID. And not just from a health perspective, but the with systems shutting down uh, and, you know, businesses shutting down and uh, also local, you know, could be court systems and all that kind of stuff. Uh, exploitation, uh, criminal behavior has only served to increase. Uh, communities that you know they get locked down to to protect from COVID has only increased the vulnerability of women and girls. In fact, we've seen we know that there's been an increase in girls being young girls being married off to get them out of the house. Uh, we know that domestic violence has increased again. You know different body rights that you know we 
we have a we have a you know a bit of a challenge here in Canada with domestic violence, but magnify that you know exponentially in other countries where there isn't any sense of that a woman has a right to not be treated that way, and um, and and when systems are shut down, that makes it even harder to get the help that they maybe they could get in their countries of origin. So. So there's no question that there's been an increase in, in that kind of thing. And then just the exploitation around COVID and some of the power struggles that have come with that uh, in different places. Um, we anticipate uh, seeing uh, many more people trying to find safety somewhere in the world. And some will come to Canada. Canada is not an easy country to get to. And so, so when you think about the fact that anybody gets here at all, it's quite incredible. Um, and, uh, and, you know, really it's small numbers um, compared to the need that is out there and the damage that is being done. Wanted to ask about some of this government red tape. I think those are, that's helpful, Shelley, to have you, to hear that from you. I, again, for those that have just been joining us, um, uh, joined with Shelley Campagnola, the Executive Director of uh, Mennonite Coalition for Refugee Support. Thanks to all of you that have been uh, uh, listening in tonight. Uh, thanks for the, the questions that are coming in. Uh, this one in particular is back to the point you made earlier. You said, well, it can take up to two years. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously that is not acceptable. Uh, so this person is asking, what can government do to cut through the red tape and speed up some of this year-long process that uh, refugee claimants are having to endure through? I think that's actually uh, something that COVID has helped to uncover what can be done a little bit. And that is, uh, in some cases are pretty straightforward. It's pretty obvious. I mean, we, we know the countries where uh, things are pretty bad. Uh, you know, Eritrea, for example, is, is the, the language that we would use is it's just one big prison uh, for people who um, are, uh, find themselves at odds with um, the systems there. Uh, and so uh, we know we know the countries where there's significant human rights violations, and and so it does not surprise the government when they see some of these claims, and they have been very good at addressing that, uh, and uh, speeding along some of those. And COVID has helped to do that to say, listen, you know, we don't have to put people through the same hurdles when we know what the outcomes are likely going to be, and. Uh, that doesn't negate the security clearances that need to happen. Uh, you know, people do need to be, we have to determine that they are not a part of the problem. Um, and the government is very good at doing that. And that's some of the delays that have happened uh, in the past. But uh, so that's one, uh, one area. Uh, another, and again, this has come out through COVID is, um, and, and we have um, been a part of this, is being able to do hearings virtually. And, uh, and that has, that just helps tremendously because now you're not having to book, you know, travel and, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it just makes it much more accessible to people. And so um, being able, uh, so having some hearings done virtually, some are done, uh, you know, there, there's paper reviews and, and what have you. And the other is uh, really the big one. And this is something that we saw before COVID is making sure that there are the resources um, quite frankly, you know, again, we don't actually see a lot of people come to Canada seeking protection. And, um, and so to much of the backlog is simply the lack of personnel to, to do hearings. And so, you know, if we're going to say that we're a country that's going to at least listen to people, then we have to have enough listeners, right? People trained to, de to determine the credibility of a claim. And that just takes money. 
Um, you know, and it doesn't take a lot of money, right? Um, I mean, I like what you put in your post about how much subsidy was put towards the oil industry. And if you, you took 1% of that and put that towards the refugee claim process in terms of resources, there wouldn't be a backlog. And we could, uh, you know, we could see these claims dealt with quickly and people not getting settled here for very long. It would be known that you're going to be heard quickly and it's going to be decided quickly and you'll know what your future is going to be. So, yeah. And that, that will help a lot of the public as well who kind of wonder what is going on here, right? So, such an important distinction, right, between the what some might see as red tape that is designed to mitigate risk and 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 have proper due diligence for folks that are being welcomed here and the reality of a lack of funding being directed to ensure we can work through the limited number of people. And that then makes it really clear we're just we're making different choices about where to invest yeah. our money. And, and, and we have good examples, like the Syrian uh, crisis is one example. Um, and I, I guess this is all because kind of a layperson. I'd be curious your perspective, but it seems to me on the outside looking in, both you know, Canadians and governments both said, we are going to step up in this case. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like things moved a lot quicker at, in, at that particular yes. juncture. Uh, you know, we could make that choice on a more regular basis is what I'm hearing from you. If, if we chose to fund the system in the appropriate ways, yeah. things would move faster. Yeah, if you, if you uh, blend together public will and political will, uh, things happen in a real hurry. I mean, we've seen even that with COVID, right? It's just uh, things can happen very quickly when there's a desire to make it happen quickly. And it's in our best interest to make it happen quickly because if we are concerned that people are coming and just to, you know, let's say worst case scenario, take the system. Well, a system that works really fast uh, is an answer to that because people learn they don't get to stay here very long if if their claim is not credible. So it's in our best interest to make sure the resources are there so that decisions can be made quickly and those that deserve protection get it quickly and those that don't don't get it and are, um, you know, and sent back quickly. Yeah, that's, uh, I think something, again, we can all be advocating for. I liked your point earlier that there, these are conversations we can all have to step up and, and be, you know, not uh, active bystands, bystanders as we hear some of the casual racism in our community, as we hear comments about refugees that we can step up and speak against and, and, and speak against some of that dis- whether it's on policy or on funding to say, this is what we're looking for. Um, right. So, I, last question, we've only got a few minutes left. Someone's been asking about how um, MCRS, how typical is an organization like MCRS in other places across the country? Um, is that something that's to do with a gap in terms of having that local community capacity? Kathy must mention this as, as well in, in the post, how important it is uh, to have that capacity to receive uh, newcomers and to support them in the journey the way you were describing. Um, mm-hmm. Can you share a bit about, you know, I guess someone heard how, what a, what a kind of organic local story MCRS is. Uh, well, in other places across the country, is there a similar organization or, or is it kind of a patchwork based on where people have uh, chosen to step up? Yeah, there are organizations in key centers across the country. Uh, Ontario is, is, I believe, an extraordinary province in that we are one of 22 organizations that uh, ex, you know, um, focus exclusively on refugee claimants. It's pretty exciting. 
Um, and it, it, it makes sense. I mean, a good number of people do come to Ontario. I'm, you know, most of the world thinks of Toronto when they're thinking of Canada. So, um, or Montreal. And uh, so it makes sense that they, this is where they come to. Vancouver would be another, there's an extraordinary hub approach in Vancouver that, you know, we would certainly love to see mm. more of here. Um, but one of the challenges even for us is, for example, we are the only organization that works exclusively with refugee claimants between Windsor and the GTA. And so, uh, you know, we look at places in between Windsor and us and to the north of us and to the, um, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, we're at, uh, you know, we certainly value, like KW Multicultural Center also works with refugee claimants, but they don't work exclusively with them. So that's the only distinction I'm making there. And they do an extraordinary job as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, our, our work historically has been, it's like we're the specialists, right? Mm -hmm. in, in, uh, and it's all we do. So, uh, and so there are gaps. In fact, uh, again, maybe one of the advantages of COVID has been, you know, our move to virtual and remote. And we are now... Um, our client uh, base is now 22% of it is outside of mm. Kitchener Waterloo now and extends from Windsor to Ottawa um, because people can't get um, the help that they need in some of these smaller communities. And so uh, we're excited to be able to, to be able to do that and looking forward to drawing in those communities to say, Hey, listen, do you know, like, like you've actually got a good group of people there that we're helping and here's how you can get involved. Um, and that's important to us because Unlike, you know, all the other organizations, um, we don't get any government funding at all for what we do. Uh, we are totally supported by our donors in our community. So uh, getting our community involved is critical to us to being able to continue the good work that we do. Well, as someone who has led uh, and started a nonprofit before, it uh, makes me think about how critical having your expertise and the rest of the MCRS team, Shelley, to share with others. Uh, and that, you know, that's actually a public service mm -hmm. that you have that experience that, that can be shared. And, uh, and so maybe we'll, we'll close there. We're just over 6.30 now. I, I really appreciate, Shelley, you, uh, you making time for this conversation. Um, so thanks, thanks yeah. to you. Uh, thanks to all of you that have been uh, joining us for the conversation. Thanks for your, your interest and in what we can be doing to, uh, to, to support and to build a more welcoming com uh, community for newcomers. Um, for those that are interested in digging in more, um, feel free to check out that, that post from earlier in the day. It includes links to all of the organizations we mentioned today, uh, from the Multicultural Center to Horizon to um, Reception House and uh, Immigration Partnership and MCRS, of course, as, as well. All organizations that uh, we, I think, ought to be looking at how government can and should be supporting them more for the important public service they're doing. And while there's a gap in the meantime, I think for each of us to consider whether it's with our financial support or with our time, how we can be strengthening their, their capacity to be doing the important work that they're doing every day, while also there's policy that we can mm -hmm. all be pushing on. And so you'll see links in that post to how we can uh, each alongside groups like MCRS to say, 
no, this is not acceptable, that the U.S. is not a safe country for all those seeking refuge at this point. And this is why we must repeal the safe third country agreement, for example. So you'll find links to that there, as well as, you know, that story um, from the uh, record I mentioned from a few weeks back. That's all linked there, and so I'd encourage you to check that out. Uh, for now, again, thanks for being with us tonight. Shelley, thanks. Uh, this has been, uh, this is my first time. Uh, it, as you said, we're all kind of shifting the ways we're doing things. Usually this might have an in-person in conversation. Really appreciate your willingness uh, to, uh, to jump onto Facebook Live to have this happen. So uh, thanks yeah. again to you for doing And for thank doing you this. for inviting me, Mike. A pleasure. Really interesting con conversation. Thanks again for everyone for tuning, tuning in.